So when it comes to sex and sexuality and gender, we're facing a very complicated group of interrelated issues. And so as we've seen over the last several weeks, our views about sex and about gender and about sexuality are typically based on moral intuitions. And these moral intuitions reside at a deeper level than our heads or our minds or our intellect. They reside in our hearts, in our guts, in our instincts. And over recent decades in diverse fields of study, from philosophy to neurobiology, from psychology to theology, from marketing to sociology, a fundamental consensus has emerged that the way we get our moral intuitions is through story. And there are three fundamental stories our society tells. Hold on, let me try to take that. There are three fundamental stories our society tells that form our sense of what's right and wrong when it comes to sexual relationships. Two weeks ago, we looked at the stories our society tells about identity. That in our age of authenticity, one of the most important things in life is to discover your deepest dreams, your, your deepest desires, and then to bring those to the world. And our sexual desires are essential to that part of us. They're both a marker of our true self and a primary way of expressing our true self. So you've got to be true to yourself no matter what other people say. And if someone puts pressure on you to change, they are oppressing you. They are threatening your core health, your flourishing. Last week, we looked at the story-shaped view of freedom in our society today. And, and this particular view of freedom that our society tells, the story about it, is that freedom is about choice. The ability to choose. Choose who you will be. Do what you want. Live what you want. And applied to sexuality, it produces three fundamental rules in our society today. As long as it's consensual, do what you want. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, do what you want. And don't tell anybody else that their consented, non-harmful choices are bad. Because if you do that, you're being judgmental. Now, for both of the last two weeks, we talked about what inside of those stories is actually very good. And comes from scripture and comes from God's work in our world. Tonight we're going to come to the final set of stories that our society tells that form the bedrock of our moral intuitions when it comes to issues of sex. And that is the story our society tells regarding love, specifically romantic love. And to unmask our deep intuitions about love and romantic love, let's start in an unexpected place. Death Row. In Norman Mailer's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Executioner's Song, 
Later, it was made into an Academy Award-winning movie. There's a murderer on death row. His name is Gary Gilmore. He writes a letter to his girlfriend who's also in prison, and he asks the question, what is to become of us, Nicole? I know you wonder, but the answer is simple. By love, we can become more than the situation. And that's the view of love that dominates our society today. Now, now don't get me wrong. The longing for human, for true love has always been celebrated in story and song. But in our contemporary culture, it's become magnified to an astonishing degree, to a degree it never has been before. Here in the West, in the long retreat of Christianity over the last several centuries, love has risen to the throne once held by God. Love, genuine love, has become the new God. And not just any old God, but it's become the spitting image of the Christian God. Love in our society today has come to be seen with the qualities we once assigned to the Christian God. The qualities of all good, unconditional, unchanging, selfless in showing concern for the well-being of others, our chief bulwark against suffering and loss. It's love that gives us meaning and happiness. Love saves, love explains, love justifies, love washes away mistakes, love defeats suffering, love defeats injustice. We've given all of these qualities to romantic love that once only God held. In other words, in our secular age, Christianity has declined, but faith has not. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Denial of Death, a book that sits at the intersection of psychology and philosophy, Ernest Becker documents this aspect of Western society. Quote, if you don't have a God in heaven... You take what is nearest at hand and let it work out your problems. So our society has not lost faith. It has faith. It's lost faith in the God of the Bible and shifted that faith to love. Just think about how the songs and the movies and the novels of our secular age are filled with the power of love in place of the power of God. Take three movies, for example. The 2001 classic Shrek, Academy Award winner. The 2004 cult classic, The Notebook. Hasn't won an Academy Award, but has definitely gained a cult following. And the 2006, 2016 movie, La La Land, uh, nominated for 11 Academy Awards, won six of them. What these three movies all have in common is the power of love. They all tell the story of romantic love, not God, but romantic love as the strongest force in the universe. In La La Land, the movie, you can chase your dreams if you have the power of romantic love. In The Notebook, with the power of romantic love, you can face down Alzheimer's. And in Shrek, you can marry an ogre. All you need, all you need is true love. 
It's hard to say that one, isn't it? Love, true love. That's all you need. Not the God of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. All you need is romantic love because true love burns brightly and passionately and then it just keeps burning until death and then it keeps burning after death because love, true love, is the strongest force in the universe. So over the last several centuries, with the spread of secularism in the wasteland of Western idols, love survives. It's in love we trust. Romantic love is the gift that saves, the gift that rescues. Our society has lost belief in God and we struggle to come to grips with our place in the universe. So how do we instill a, a sense of significance in our life? Well, one of the main ways, what Ernest Becker in his book, The Denial of Death, labeled apocalyptic romance. We look for a romance. We look for sex and romance to give us transcendence and a sense of meaning that we used to get from our faith in God. Find love and you can escape loneliness and insecurity. Fall in love, life has meaning. When you're in love, you're transported beyond the messy imperfections of the everyday world into havens of peace and purity. It's love that can change desperate situations. This is what our movies and books and songs and Instagram and Snapchat and magazines call us to keep on doing, to load all of our deepest needs in our heart our need for significance, our heart's desire for transcendence, load it into romance. Love has become the only truly universal religion in the West. Just think about the great movie that so many of us love, The Princess Bride. Think about how it maintains the fantasy that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. Now, how did this happen? How did we get to this view of love? Its roots are in Christianity, most definitely. In the confession that God is love and that God saved the world out of love. But while its roots are in Christianity, what happened in the high Middle Ages in France around the 12th century is what set us on the course we're on today. A tradition began that was carried from France into Italy and Spain through music. It was the troubadour tradition, the songs of the troubadours. These are songs that focused on stories of chivalry, the idealization of women, the uplifting ache of unconsummated desire. And this semi-Christianized view of love, it's called the courtly love tradition. It flourished throughout medieval Europe and it had a good run for about six or 700 years. And then in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, the way people viewed romantic love underwent a second significant transformation. This time it happened not through music, but through a novel. Suddenly, you have these stories told in novels where people find their meaning and their vocation and their fate and even their salvation. They find all of these wonderfully necessary things as they fall in love. And so throughout the rise of secularism and the long, slow death of God in Western civilization, over the last couple of centuries, while that's been going on, We've been busy writing some really good novels. 
some really great stories. And so many of them focus on romantic love. And these stories have been told so well that their particular view of romantic love has taken hold in the popular conscience. It's captured our imaginations. I'm talking about Jane Austen. Walter Scott, the Brontes, Dickens, uh, George Eliot, Thomas Hardy, Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf, Samuel Beckett, the list goes on and on. Through their novels, novels like Pride and Prejudice and Wuthering Heights, over the course of the late 18th century into the early 19th century, our Western society has begun to imbuse, embrace a new view of life that is energized by romantic love. Now, I'm obviously way oversimplifying a very complex thing. I mean, think about what all was going on during the same period of time. The means of production were being revolutionized. Literacy was growing. Social hierarchy and the status of women were changing. The middle class was growing. Science was developing new ideas of determinism. And God, for many people, was disappearing. And in the midst of this, you have these remarkable novels, these love stories where individuals are filled with worth and potential. And you have these wonderful plots focused on love and the lover and the beloved. No matter who they are, they're the stars of the stories. And so the deep formation of these love stories on our collective psyche develops in us this intuition that the person who falls in love is the elect one. So what happened is during the late 1700s and the 1800s, as the West was losing its faith in God, novels began to form in people the religion of romantic love. Look at it this way. Way back in the early days of the Greco-Roman Empire, love was a goddess. In the 19th century, love has once again come to take on the force of deity. And so love increasingly fills the vacuum left by the retreat of Christianity. And this carries on until roughly the 1930s when the power of the novel to shape our imaginations and moral intuitions is replaced by radio, advertising, movies, and eventually the internet. There is so much good in this story, in this view of love, but there's also some things going on that are not so good. But before we get into that, I want us to press pause and I want to talk about a very different subject and then we're gonna come back to love. I want us to learn a particular way to look at culture, a way to evaluate culture that scripture teaches us. It's, it's the way I've been looking at these issues over the last several weeks, but I haven't been telling you how I'm doing it. So what I want to do now is talk to you about the framework I use that I've learned from scripture to look at culture with. So we're gonna pull back from this particular story about love, and I want to talk about a biblical theology of culture. And then I want us to use that to evaluate this story of love. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 11. 
Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and discernment, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lion, with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. What we have here is the Christian vision of a future free from violence and bias and war. A future where we live on this earth with genuine security and safety. No threats of violence, no injustice, no vulnerability. Life on this earth, a world set free from both human injustice and natural violence. This is not simply a hope beyond the world. This is a hope for the world, um, Julian of Norwich, and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. It's this foundational vision right at the center of Christianity that God will make everything right. That one day there will be, and you can feel it in this passage, this cosmic sigh of relief. We hear it from the lambs and the wolves. And it's what we've all been waiting for in this world of ours that's grown so old in sophistication and cynicism and violence. But I want to draw your attention in particular to the last verse. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. Jesus is the desire of the nations. He is what the nations have longed for peace, justice, freedom, a voice and a vote that counts, health and around and above all of these, love and real satisfaction for the desires of the heart, uh, the hungers which no amount of money or fine houses or fast cars or luxury vacations or love affairs can ever reach. In verse 10, we see all of the nations of the world streaming to King Jesus. 
And notice, they're not bowing down before a power. They're bowing down before a person. God himself, a leader of human beings, who is the fulfillment of those nations, their stories. And notice it says, of him shall the nations inquire. Now, what is it they're inquiring about? What are the nations asking him about? They are inquiring of Jesus. Jesus is what they're asking about. Jesus is what they've always desired. This is what the last phrase is telling us. Whoever comes to this place of rest has reached the goal. Now they can live. They can truly live. Whenever, and, and this is a critical move when it comes to looking at culture. Whenever we are talking with someone about something that is at the core of them, about something that really matters, whenever we're talking to any tribe or people group or community or, or, or city or nation, whenever we're talking with people about one of the complicated issues regarding sexuality and gender, we must always remember that Jesus alone is the bread of life. He is the fulfillment of the deep desires they're trying to express. The gospel really does fulfill our culture's deepest desires. And so part of what I've been doing in these last two sessions and this one tonight is I've been trying to use this to focus on the stories our culture is telling about identity and freedom and now love. And part of the reason I've approached these issues in the way I have is because we need to learn to recognize the deep stories, the long stories that, that generations and cultures tell in such a way that we can tell their story so that, here's how N.T. Wright put it, we tell the story of the world, our increasingly neo-pagan society, in terms of the long history of promises that they have clung on to and pledges that have been made to them and broken. And we need to be prepared to think their stories all the way through so that we can tell the story that the person is living in a way that they say, that's right. That is my story. You've listened to me. You've heard me. You hear what I'm saying. And we need to tell the story in a way that it culminates in Jesus. And when it does, they don't feel like we pulled a rabbit out of the hat. Like it was just a sleight of hand trick at the end. We need to be able to tell the deep stories in the truest way so that they really do end in Jesus. And when the person we're talking with looks at, looks at it, they see that that is a logical way to tell the story. That that is the true fulfillment of the story. So that they see that Jesus is the one they always wanted to hear. We have to tell their story in such a way that it ends in Jesus who is the truly human one. The one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The living bread through whom all of our hungers are satisfied. So the gospel, you see, really is everyone's fulfillment. But here's the trick. The gospel is not merely fulfillment. It's also subversion. The way the Christian story relates to other cultures is the Christian story is the true culmination. It's the true fulfillment of the deep stories 
but it's a fulfillment that's also subversive. It's a subversive fulfillment. This phrase, subversive fulfillment, it's a label developed by a British theologian named Daniel Strange. His specialty is in the area of the relationship of Christianity to other world religions. And so, to explain it in his own words, non-Christian religions or non-Christian worldviews are essentially an idolatrous refashioning of divine revelation, which are antithetical and yet parasitic on Christian truth, and of which the gospel of Jesus Christ subversively fulfills. The really important insight here is that the gospel fulfills the deepest aspirations of the world, but only by contradicting the distorted and idolatrous means the world uses to satisfy them. So, that's a biblical kind of culture theology. Now, let's go back to the story of love, and let's see how the Christian vision both subverts and fulfills. And to begin with, let's recognize that the Bible affirms that the view that love is indeed, I love this phrase, the greatest of great things. Love is uniquely powerful. It is a uniquely powerful force that is uniquely fundamental to our lives. For example, John 3.16, one of our favorite verses in all the Bible, centers the whole story of the Bible around love. For God so thought about the world in a cold and detached way. For God so loved the world. Christians put love right at the center. Clearly love is central. And furthermore, let's recognize the importance and power, not just of love in general, but romantic love. Take, for example, that remarkable series of poems in the Bible, the Song of Solomon. If you have a Bible, turn to the Song of Solomon and notice the very first chapter, the very first verse, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Passionate, romantic love tastes better than wine. It's more intoxicating than wine. It's beautiful and breathtaking. It grips us and takes a hold of us. So whether it's Pride and Prejudice or Shrek or The Princess Bride, our society's got it right on this. Romantic love is extraordinarily powerful. Now go to the last chapter of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon chapter 8 and this, these are some of the most beautiful words, I think, in all of world literature. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Talking about this thing of love. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are the flashes of fire, the very flame of Yah. The very flame of the Lord. It's this amazing. It's one word in English, flame of Yah, in, in Hebrew. 
It's this remarkable thing. This is beautiful. Romantic love is so strong that if all the elements of the world conspired together and even if death joined in the conspiracy, their power would bow before the power of romantic love. And furthermore, romantic love is this gift from God. It's flashes or flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. And this helps us to see something that's really good in the sexual revolution. Through the sexual revolution, God has helped our society make some necessary adjustments to our view of love and sex. You see, the church has unfortunately earned its reputation as the enemy of sex. And how we got that reputation is a long story. And in some ways it's understandable and in some ways it's shameful. The bare outline of how the church became known as the enemy of sex goes like this. Until about 500 years ago in the West, sexual existence was divided not into homosexual and heterosexual. It was divided into two other groups, the higher sphere of the celibate clergy and religious orders and the lower sphere of the ordinary population where people had to have sex in order to make babies. But even then, be careful, because married sex was guarded by a whole bunch of rules, all these prohibitions against pleasure and the constant teaching that you're having sex to have babies, but there is a more perfect path, and that path avoids sex altogether. And so the church, for about a thousand years, promoted a culture that denigrated sexual life. Here in the West, the church's official theology when it came to sex was geared toward the values of celibacy. And this was exemplified in the lives of monks and nuns and priests and bishops. So in the Catholic Church, for many centuries, the teaching about sex was that if you were not going to live the higher calling of celibacy, if you were going to get married and have sex, then you need to know that pure sex, good sex, is disciplined by reason and is for the purpose of procreation, making babies. And so in the popular culture, the church cultivated guilt around sexual enjoyment. And until one generation ago, procreation was still thought to be the primary, if not the only fully justifying reason for sex. Medieval Catholic teachings were very critical of sexual pleasure, even among married couples in the process of making babies. The only proper goal of sex was pregnancy. Now, don't get me wrong. It wasn't just the Catholics. In the Protestant church, we see a similar denigration, but for different reasons. We, but we still see a denigration of sex all the same. For example, in the Victorian era, in both England and America, for Protestants, sex was primarily not procreation, but bonding a couple together. Sex was healthy and pleasure was attached to it, but pleasure, pleasure wasn't the goal. Now, I'm dwelling on this for two reasons. One, we need to know that Christians bear heavy responsibility for the reaction that was the sexual revolution. And two, as I pointed out last week, there is much good in the sexual revolution. 
three very important gifts that the sexual revolution has given us for which Christians should be thankful. Gifts that are deeply biblical and produced by the Spirit of God. Number one, the affirmation of sensuality. Number two, the equality of the sexes. The idea that men and women come together in intimacy as true partners. And, and, and a third issue that's profoundly biblical, I haven't taken the time to talk about it, but it's the overcoming of the divisions between mind and body, reason and feeling. So it's important that we learn to recognize the sexual revolution and the elevation of erotic love is very complex. Much of what drove the sexual revolution was deeply rooted in Christianity. We cannot simply treat the sexual revolution as an outbreak of hedonism. Because when you do that, you lose the capacity to tell the deep story of the culture in a way that is truly fulfilled in Christ. In keeping with the gifts of the sexual revolution, the stories our culture are telling about romantic love, we need to affirm that erotic love is a powerful force, that it is of the very essence of life as humans, and that it can be from God. And yet remember... The gospel not only fulfills, it also subverts. Remember, in that day, Isaiah 11.10, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. We're seeing that the gospel fulfills the deepest aspirations of the world. But only by contradicting the distorted and idolatrous means the world adopts to satisfy them. And so, while there is so much good going on in the story our society is telling about romantic love, there is part of that story that just does not work. For example, as powerful as romantic love is, it's fickle. It tends to ebb and flow. C.S. Lewis perceptively wrote about this. He said, while being in love is a good thing, it is not the best thing. There are many things below being in love, but there are also things above it. You cannot make it the basis of a whole life. It is a noble feeling, but it is a feeling. And no feeling can be relied on to last in its full intensity or even to last at all. Knowledge can last, principles can last, habits can last, but feelings come and go. And yet ceasing to be in love does not have to mean ceasing to love. For all of its wonderful power, romantic love is too fickle to build a life on. Second, a second problem with the story our culture tells about romantic love is that romantic love by itself becomes dangerously selfish. Whenever lovers focus on each other to the exclusion of the rest of creation or the creator, their relationship inevitably dissolves into a self-centered relationship. The love relationship inevitably boomerangs into self-satisfaction. I love you comes to mean you meet my needs. I love you comes to mean you scratch my itch. 
And of course, that kind of love is destined for tragedy because it turns the person I love into a means for my gratification. It's a form of self-idolatry. It says the person I love exists to satisfy me. Now, instead of lovers, what you end up with is a pair of parasites trying to feed off of one another. But the story the Bible tells about romantic love celebrates romantic love, rejoices in it, and it handles the fickleness, and it handles the inherent selfishness in this powerful gift. In the story the Bible tells, just like the story in our society is telling, being in love can bring out the best in us. It can make us generous and tender and self-forgetful. But the Bible helps us understand that when this is happening, What's happening is that we're actually getting the proper vision of the other person. We're getting an insight into the other person's eternal identity. To the rest of the world, this vision seems a delusion. She's moonstruck. Or love is blind. Or as Shakespeare wrote in The Tempest about the person who's fallen in love, they have changed eyes. But what's happening when we're in love is that for just a moment, when Cupid's golden arrow hits your heart, and in that instant, the world is transformed, and you crave union with the beloved, you want somehow to crawl inside of each other, in that moment, you have the God-given eyesight of seeing the other person in their best way possible. That moment is a foretaste of how you will view everyone in the new heavens and the new earth. In this sense, romantic love is not a distortion of our vision. It is a correction of it. In a, the Bible uses explicit romantic images to describe God's love for us. What we feel in passing for one person when we're in love with them, God feels eternally for all of us, for all of his sons and daughters. If we receive romantic love, not as an end in itself, but as a gift from God, a shining grace, it can become like the shaft of light beckoning us toward what we will someday experience more fully in our resurrected bodies. Look at it this way. I cannot love every person in my neighborhood, let alone every person on the planet, in the way I love my wife. I don't have the capacity to do that or the desire. But one day, I will. That's the gift of love. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. He describes the amazing gift of romantic love and its awesome power. Quoting him, talking about being in love. In one high bound, it has overleaped the massive wall of our selfishness. It's made appetite altruistic. Tossed personal happiness aside as a triviality and planted the interest of another in the center of our being. Spontaneously and without effort, we have fulfilled the law towards one person. We love one person as we love ourselves. It's an image, a foretaste of what must become to, what must become to all if love himself rules in us without a rival. 
Used well, romantic love is preparation for that. Now, here's a subtle but serious difference between the Christian vision of romantic love and the vision we get from our secular age. It's a subtlety that I learned best when I read an essay by Marty Eads, this amazing uh, professor of English at Eastern Mennonite University. She wrote this essay about a great novel, Jaber Crow, written, does anybody know this, by Wendell Berry. She points out that in Jaber Crow, we see romantic longing as the starting point, not the end point. As a starting point, it can lead to far more encompassing human love. It can lead even to salvation. Jaber Crow, she writes, is a theology of romantic love as suffering unto salvation. She describes Jaber Crow as a passion narrative. So that's the third way that our society's approach to love is just not as good as the Bible's story of love. It doesn't recognize God as the true end of romantic love. Our secular age is staring at love as if it's the thing to stare at, as if it is the end point, instead of looking where romantic love is pointing. Romantic love is a great gift to be received, but it is a gift pointing us toward God. Fourth and finally, a fourth flaw in our society's view of love is that our society has cut off romantic love from its source. What I mean is that in our secular age, it's love that carries the burden of achieving what in the Christian story only God can achieve. We've stopped believing in the Christian God, but we've kept all of our expectations for the Christian God and offloaded them onto love. Remember at the beginning of the night, I said, love, genuine love has become the new God. And not just any God, but the spitting image of the Christian God. This is a fascinating thing that's happened. And the key issue here that can be neatly expressed in this clever wordplay that I'm going to steal from a Presbyterian theologian by the name of Peter Lightheart. In the story our secular age is telling about love, the Christian confession of faith that the God of love saves us has been replaced by the secular confession of faith. Love saves us. And so this is a shift from the Christian confession of faith that God is love to the current confession of faith that love is God. And we can see this. I'll close with this. When we compare Beauty and the Beast Whichever one you want, the, the like Disney animated version or the newer like uh, live action one. Let's compare it, Beauty and the Beast, with C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. They're both retelling the same ancient myth. In Beauty and the Beast, it's Belle's love that has the power to break the spell and transform the beast back into a man. This is a prime example of the story our society tells about love, that love saves. It has the power to redeem a beast and make him a prince. It has the power to redeem an extramarital affair and make it okay. It has the power to redeem a couple's choice to cohabitate. It has the power to make same-sex sex okay. But if they love each other, isn't it okay? 
whether they're living together, moving in together, having an affair. Do you see how we've got this gut instinct that love redeems, love transforms, love justifies. That's the story of Beauty and the Beast. Love saves. Now compare this to the story C.S. Lewis tells about the same myth in the voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a scene. It starts with Eustace. He's a rotten little boy, and he's come up on a large fortune, and he falls asleep with his treasure. And when he awakes, Eustace is no longer a boy. Does anybody know? What is it? He's a dragon. That's right. The outward manifestation of his inner greed and selfishness. He's a beast. Okay? Now, up to this point in the story, everything is the same as Beauty and the Beast. Greed has made a human into a beast. Now, in Beauty and the Beast, love saves. What saves in the voyage of the Dawn Treader? Well, in his mercy and compassion, Aslan, who's the God figure, he shows up and he leads the dragoned Eustace to a well of water at the center of a garden. Eustace desperately wants to get in, but before he can get in, Aslan says, you know, I'm going to read because Lewis's words are better than my summary at this point. Aslan says, remember he's turned into a dragon, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace, who at this point in the book is telling the story to his friend Edmund, Eustace tells him, here's his words, I was afraid of his claws, Aslan the, the lion but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart, and when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it is so much fun to seeing it come away. Edmund says, I know exactly what you mean. So do my kids who pick at their scabs. The little ones. And Eustace says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they didn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others that had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much. I was very tender. And he threw me into the water. Are you picking up the imagery here? It's baptism. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all the pain had gone from my arm where he had made the cut. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. Now, this is a different story. Compare this to Beauty and the Beast, and you can see the important difference in how our society has come to envision redemption through romantic love in contrast to how Christianity depicts redemption and the Christian story is better. It's truer. Romantic love cannot redeem us. 
We're expecting too much from it. It's too fickle. It's too fraught with selfishness. We've cut it off from its source. And we've cut it off from its end. Romantic love can point us down the path. It can point us to God. But it is God's love. His sometimes painful, sometimes brutal love. This is the only force on earth that can break over death's barrier, save us, and restore us. That can turn our beastliness into princes and princesses. So to wrap this up, whether it's Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella, The Little Mermaid, or more adult fare like The Notebook, our society tells these amazing stories that show us true love as the most powerful force in the universe, the force that has the power to overcome suffering and disappointment. Through it, we can conquer any obstacle, justify any behavior, raise the dead, transform beasts into human beings. But that is expecting far too much from love. And this may come as a complete surprise, but when Jesus talked about love, he never talked about love as the silver bullet, the all-purpose solution to life's problems. He never suggested that human beings can be saved through love. What we've seen tonight is that making love into God is something our secular age has done over the last couple of 100 years. Because when you lose God, you're going to work out your problems on something. Whatever's nearest at hand. And this new religion, the religion of love, it's making us over-dependent on being in love so that without a romantic relationship of some kind, even the wrong kind, our lives feel meaningless. And this is doing significant damage to human flourishing. It's filling our relationships with false expectations and it's sabotaging them from the start. Promises are being made that cannot be kept. When love carries the burden of achieving what in the Christian story only God can achieve, we will experience all kinds of unfortunate consequences. Making an idol out of love leaves us susceptible to the lover exploiting us, abusing us. It can cause terrible blindness to the pathologies in the relationship. An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion. An idolatrous attachment can lead you to betray any allegiance in order to hold on to this thing. It drives you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. And we live in a culture that makes it so easy to enslave ourselves to romantic love. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the subversive fulfillment of the story our secular age tells about love. And beginning next week, our attention is going to shift away from looking at the culture stories to, to the Christian vision of sex and sexuality and gender. And beginning next week, we'll spend four weeks in a row seeing how it really is a better story. All right, I'll stop there. Mark, if you'll come up and lead us. This is Mark Rankin, professor of biology? No, English at JMU. That's right. Tell us what to do. Right, so... Um if you've been here before, it's the same. And if, if not, uh, we have people here who are going to be passing around slips. And so please, uh, if you have a question, 
Uh, there's different slips, observations, things you want to know more about, things that you want to ask Aubrey. Uh, we'll take a few minutes, and as you're finishing that, if you could hold it up so that people uh, who have baskets know, uh, they'll come and gather those, and then we'll have uh, a discussion. So, Are you ready, Aubrey? All right. Yeah. Um, I'd like to just lead us off by um, asking a question that um, maybe for the sake of some in the audience who aren't familiar with the term sexual revolution, if maybe you could just define that just briefly, like what that constituted. I'm thinking mainly of the teenagers. It was a student movement. Uh, some, some of you here lived through it. Uh, some of us were born out of it. And uh, <laughs> it was a student movement that was focused on throwing off a lot of fetters that were holding us back. I don't, I don't think I'm prepared to do a big definition of it right now. No, I think that that's, that's enough. Okay. Uh, okay. And it happened in the 1960s yeah. and yeah. early 1970s. Yeah. yeah, late 60s. Right. people had questions about um, the idea, you mentioned how romantic love can be a picture of, you know, how when you're in love can be a picture of how you will one day love all people, have the capacity to love all people. There's some confusion around that, how romantic love could then be transferred to all people. Yeah, you should have seen several people in the room kind of jolted when I said that. The question I'm sorry. I'm sorry. being, I, I, I talked about romantic love in the new heavens and new earth maybe expanding out to the way we see all people. Mm -hmm. um, I was making some big, quick moves there. So at the end of Song of Solomon, it, it talks about love and this, this kind of love as the flame of Yahweh, the flame of the Lord. And the Bible is filled with erotic imagery describing God's love for us. And I think that we need to imagine the very best romantic relationship as this incredible capacity to see the very best in someone. to continually leap over your own selfishness and to, like the quote from Lewis, plant the flag of that other person in the core of your being. And even the desire for intercourse, this desire to be completely known, fully open to the other person, When we begin to think of it in those ways, I think that's how we will be with all people. We will love as we are loved. Um, I cannot do that now. Um, 
But I think that if we can learn to, if we can learn to think through what erotic love is when it's, when it's held in that very healthy place, the way we see that other person as the person, not necessarily that they are right now, but as the person they will be, we see them now as if they are that person. I think that that's what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth. I do not think there will be a single person in the new heavens and the new earth who is not loved by every single person. It will be the end of loneliness. The end of aloneness. The end of not being known. The end of not knowing others. So I, I think that passage that says we'll be like the angels. I think it's pointing more to this than it is a reduction of your love life. See, too many times we read that verse and we think that our love will reduce. Our being known will be reduced. Our knowing will be reduced. But instead, it's going to be expanded. Does that answer it or does I, that create I, I, more questions? I think that's very helpful. Okay. There was something you said too in the lecture that I liked a lot about how people say, you know, love is blind or you're blinded by your emotions when, when really it's, it may be an opening up of, that's right. of the, the love, the, the capacity to, to see the best in someone, yeah. which I thought was really beautiful. See, this is, and this is going to come back and it's going to be very important in our last series when we're talking about the gift of the, of the homosexual community to the church. There's this idea in, in the gay celibate Christian community that, that they're doing this thing where you sublimate your erotic love. And you turn it into this gift for the world. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about becoming, yeah, I'll stop there because I think I'll end up generating more questions. So. Um, maybe kind of related to that, Aubrey, um, just wondering for people who are not experiencing romantic or, or sexual fulfillment, um, how can that be fulfilled in Christ? Or how can you encourage someone who is single but wanting that kind of romantic relationship? Ask it again. So or to speak to some people who are feeling desire for sexual romantic relationship, not experiencing that, um, can that be fulfilled in a way in Christ? And if so, how, practically speaking? The very best answer I know to that is coming from the gay Christian community. The group of adults who are, so, who are deeply committed to Christ and they're committed to the Christian sexual ethic and they're writing about how they are transforming their desire for sexual experience into pathways of faithfulness to God and others. And this, this is the gift. This is, 
why I keep using this word gay Christian. Because gay means more than just same-sex sex. There's more to the life than that. So I think the best answer to that, I would encourage you to read Eve Tushnet's book, Tenderness, or her first book, Gay and Catholic, or Wesley Hill's book, Washed and Waiting, or Gregory Cole's book, Single Gay Christian. These are all three memoirs of deeply committed Christians who have steadfast same-sex attraction that are doing exactly what you're saying and talking about it. So, read a book. (laughs) I'll talk more about that in, in the weeks to come. I think this is the flip side to that question, and that is how do you pursue romantic love in a marriage without losing sight of the creator who mm-hmm. uh, created that romantic love? Small question. I think. Um I don't know any great profound answer. I think confess your sins and um, live in a healthy community and be very careful that you're not letting things that are so dark and twisted like pornography give you terrible ideas. Stay away from all that darkness. And um, and things like I've been trying to say, like sex is not a core need. It's next to the core needs. And so, typically idols are found right next to the truth. And if the, the closer they are to the truth, the more powerful they can become idols. Romantic love, when we lost faith in God, we shifted something onto a thing right next to God. And the closer it is to God, the more liable it is to be twisted as an idol. So um, power can become this idol because God is powerful. Um, Bob, I don't know if I can say much more than that. I've, I've, yeah. Mark, can you please give a question that's answerable? I can't. I'll read a question um, about the cultural power of the uh, story that romantic love saves us. Um, the person is asking, how do I unsubscribe from the story that romantic love saves? Everything Aubrey said made a lot of sense, but how do I do it when this has been the message my whole life? Just do it. <laughs> so, um, first of all, we need artists who will write stories and songs and music and plays and TV shows. Um, we, we need our imaginations funded by better stories. And we need to find the really good ones. Um, Joshua's texted me 
about a movie he was watching recently who had a good hero arc, a hero arc where the hero in the climactic moment doesn't look in, but is, is helped, is aided. You know, we need to find those stories. Um, they are there. I mean, it's not all or nothing. There are some tremendous stories that our society tells. And um, we need to rejoice in those. And we need to find them. And we need people to write them. We need artists, I mean, like never before. Um, I think that part of what I'm trying to do in this series is trying to model a way of thinking about culture that's more nuanced than secular bad, Christian good. You know, some of the worst music ever created is Christian music. (laughs) And some incredible music is Christian music. Just because it's Christian music doesn't make it great. Um, Just because it's Christian TV doesn't make it great. Um, So, but... mm, I think we need to live in good and thoughtful communities that can help us think about these things. Um... What do you think, Mark? Well, is it fair to say, um, I think the question is getting at the idea that romantic love has a place in the Christian story, but it's not the place the culture says. So is is it fair to say, surround yourself with people who can explain what the Bible says about the place of romantic love in the Christian life? Yeah, and I think that if you sense that you've um, fallen in love with love, um... I think there's a place for fasting. I think there's a place for getting off of social media and fasting from all of the stories for a season. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer had this great phrase. He said that every man needs two baptisms, one baptism out of the world and another baptism back into the world. So I can imagine going through a season of life where in any place you're off balance, stepping away, fasting, getting recalibrated so that you can re-engage the world and not mm-hmm. be so bent and twisted. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Mark? <laughs> All I have is five lines of a question. <laughs> um, yeah, for me, it's just studying the Bible. I keep coming back to that mm. um, because... I might be wrong, but what I'm sensing in the question is this idea of, of wanting to disengage from a, a cultural message but still sort of view romantic love as a good that God mm-hmm. gives. And so, yeah, I would say um, just surround yourself with individuals who have studied the Bible and who can lead you through and look at its stories, maybe. I don't know, just a thought. And if you realize it's about yourself, tell a friend. Like, bring it out into the open. Um, it's not about becoming perfect overnight. Yeah. I, before you, Callie, I, I do want to say that this kind of question has been coming up every week. As, as it seems like we're beginning to realize more and more how powerful culture is. See, we've been so busy keeping out 
pornography, which we should do, that we've been overlooking these deep stories that are forming, that we've all let in. And I, and I can feel this like, what do we do then? Because it's so pervasive, right? Like the Trojan horse has come in. Look, one of the best gifts you can give yourself is to be patient. Be patient with yourself, be patient with others, and be patient with God. If God has helped you see, wow, I've, let, I've been deeply formed by the stories of identity, freedom, and romantic love, then there's a grace. In God's grace, he's helping you to see that. And God is not in a hurry. I mean, he took billions of years to create this earth. Right? He took, humans have been around 200,000 years. God works in eons. That shouldn't scare you. That should give you a deep peace that God's going to work this out. And so a critical piece of this is we, we as a community begin to see these things and we patiently work with each other and hopefully our kids are raised in, and their kids are raised in environments. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my son Silas was sitting in the lecture next to my wife and I was talking about how evangelical churches tend to make idolatry out of marriage and... Um, he leaned to my wife and said some version of, there are churches that think it's better to be married than single? He had no idea. Isn't that wonderful? Like that's the power that churches can get their act together on this stuff. And we can, we can play the long game over time. We can grow and be delivered from some of these idolatrous formations. So be patient. And keep asking these questions of much smarter people than me. I'm just telling you what. Somebody can help you figure out how. So, all right. Um, another question was about, you know, we talk about the power of romantic love, but it can be all fulfilling. It does have its weaknesses. And so there are questions about how to talk to our children about that. Maybe just because I'm a female, I think in particular talking to our daughters about that, I think it's sometimes pushed more on females than on men, that romantic love. You know, your wedding's going to be so big or it's going to be this culminating thing. So ways to talk to children and teenagers about the power of love but not about its all-encompassing ability to save. So, Callie, I mean, you just said so many good things. <laughs> like, there is a direct relationship between the increasing cost of weddings and their movements out of the church so as, as romantic love has assumed the throne, we now have to spend all of this money to make the most photographically romantic wedding engagement even. Even the engagement, right, has to have. And think about these are all ways that we're loading onto the God of romantic love. It's because as we lose the Christian God, we have to replace God's gravity with something else, and so it becomes aesthetic. Where it's going to be the gravity of an, an aesthetically perfect wedding. That's what's going to create sacredness. So I think a lot of these things that you already mentioned, learning to say to our kids, not when you get married, but, you know, there's a rich life as a single, and there's a rich life as a married person. What do you think God is calling you to? And giving them both these equal things. Helping our kids see that um, romantic love can be a great start, 
but help being honest with them that it's fickle. Um, and that the end of kind of the romantic in love isn't necessarily the end of loving. I, I think in all of the ways that we root out the way this view has gotten into our grammar, into our language, into our lingo, and trying to find those ways and to get rid of them so that we can talk in a more realistic way. Um, what do you think, Kelly? I, I kind of get, I'm getting caught up on the people who have been creating art and music and stories and songs about the power of romantic love probably all those people have also experienced the disappointment of romantic love. So also I'm trying to figure out like, why is the lie prevailed? Yeah. Like why, why do we yeah. keep on doing this of all these people also yeah. know like it, it isn't ultimately fulfilling. So I'm trying to think like, why aren't we, why isn't that more normal that we're having conversations about if you want to get married or if that's your story or why we're still putting all of this power in, in yeah. romantic love when surely we know that, that it's, Everyone who's been married for more than a year knows that that's not true. <laughs> Love you, Wilson. Wilson. <laughs> Just a year? Some people. No. Everyone who's doing premarital with us is like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right. I feel that too. I feel frustrated. Like, why does Hollywood lie so much? Yeah. Like, yeah. why? But, but so often Hollywood does deconstruct intentionally these ideas. Hmm. So often the movies in Hollywood built around affairs are, mm -hmm. they end terribly. They're deconstructing the affair. You have to wait through all this, you know, awkward stuff to get there. Um, I, I think part of the reason is what John Calvin said, the heart is an idol factory. Mm -hmm. Like this is just a fundamental human impulse is to make an idol instead of the, the true God. Yeah, I don't. Okay, thank you. Um, again, along those lines, just the idea of idolatry of romantic love um, kind of within marriage and how that can cause selfishness with this expectation of another person meeting all of your needs. Um, how can a married person uh, discern between legitimate needs and idolatrous needs within a relationship? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, other than the, yeah. Can you ask it in a way that I might can find an answer? <laughs> um, um, somebody's married and <laughs> is frustrated by unmet needs. How does that person uh, know that frustration is born of idolatry or that uh, frustration is born of a relationship that needs yeah. correction? Yeah, I, this came up the other week when I was making the big statement about sex is not a core need. And so look, in the Bible, those passages that are talking about the husband belongs to the wife and the wife belongs to the husband and that kind of stuff, um, never do you get to take sex. Sex is always a gift. You never get to demand sex. Sex is always a gift. And that's a key move. The, the, the twist occurs when I read that, when we read the wife's body belongs to the husband, do not deny each other, it says. 
It doesn't say take from each other. We don't, we don't have the right to say to each other, you can't deny me. That is so coercive. Now, m- most marriages are within an average. And sexual desires and, and, and capacities for sex, for lots of marriages, they very rarely perfectly map on each other. And so the sex life becomes ground zero of learning to not be selfish. And and most marriages with good support community can work through these seasons. But very frequently, marriages need to go to counseling because sometimes the wounds are deep And the confusion and the pain and the frustration is so deep. And there are so many therapists who can help you with that. It is not a big deal to go to a counselor and say, we're just sexually in two different rhythms. And and this is is our problem, right? If If your leg is broken, you go to a doctor. And a doctor knows how to set your leg. And when you're in one of these places in life, and you need to be so careful because if, if one of the, the marriage partners is really averse to sex, then most likely that verse will not help. Because most likely what you're dealing with is not a failure of submission to Christ. But it's some kind of other thing going on. And this is the kind of thing that God gave us therapists for. And you've got to be patient with each other. And you've got to learn how in these moments, the one who wants sex has to learn to stop putting pressure on the other person. And to let God work in that other person's life. And there is so much pain wrapped up around this in couples. And there is so much help available. And too often, the help has been just grabbing that verse and quoting it at each other. And and that's, that verse is not a passage of scripture dealing with sexual dysfunction. It's not a therapeutic manual. The Bible is not a counseling manual. It's got wisdom in it. But just like the Bible doesn't teach us how to set bones that have been broken, that passage is dealing with something far more in the normal range of things. So, what do you think? I'd be interested to hear your answer as related to other needs besides sexual. Oh, okay. I mean, my sense was that it wasn't just referring to that, but like on an emotional level, companionship, whatever, just this idea that we get married and this person's going to be our everything. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, discerning, you know. Well, look at that. We are out of time. (laughs) That was a good point. I'll, I'll leave it there. Okay, I'm going to tell you about a couple of books. 
All right. One of the best books written about sex and the way our romantic idols are confusing it is this, Divine Sex, A Compelling Vision for Christian Relationships in a Hyper-Sexualized Age. This is such a good book. So it, it deals with the theology of sex in light of the idol of romantic love that I've pointed out. Um, now, if you're totally nerdy like Mark Rankin, and you, you like all this stuff about the novel and the troubadours and how romantic love got to be what it was. These are the two best books I know on this. The first one, it's by Robert Polhemus, Comic Faith, The Great Tradition from Austin, Jane Austen, to Joyce. And then Erotic Faith, Being in Love from Jane Austen to D.H. Lawrence, again by Robert Polhemus. So if you're interested in that part of the story, those are there. If you're... Then two other books, I don't have them with me. Somebody borrowed them. If it was you, let me know. <laughs> they are both by Simon May. One is called Love, a History, published by Yale University Press. The other is called Love, a New Understanding of an Ancient Emotion, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Simon May, Love, a History, and Love, subtitle, A New Understanding of an Ancient Emotion. All right, I'll pray and we'll be done. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the gift of romantic love. Thank you for these great questions. And I pray, God, that you would help us all to love even as we are loved. In Christ's name, amen.